Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am excited to be introducing a new series, What's Missing in Clinical Practice Today. And the guest of this series is none other than Michael Trout. Many of you are aware of the work of Michael Trout and what an important person he has been in my life. But I do want to share with some of our listeners who may be less familiar with Michael's work a bit about him. Michael Trout um, graduated from Alma College with a degree in philosophy and Central Michigan University with a degree in psychology. He then did specialized training at the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry with Professor Selma Freiberg. Many of you are familiar with that renowned person, Professor Selma Freiberg, and he began working in the field of mental health in 1968 in a variety of settings. He worked in inpatient facilities. He worked in people's homes. He did many home visits. He opened his private practice in 1979 and then he founded in 1986 the infant parent institute which is an institute that has engaged in research clinical practice and clinical training related specifically to problems of attachment which is why he is such a perfect fit for the attachment theory in action podcast. Michael has done so many things over the years. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and International Associations for Infant Mental Health. He was the charter, uh, a charter member of the editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal. He's served um, as regional vice president of the United States World Association for Infant Mental Health and served as the board of directors for the the Association for Pre and Perinatal Psychology and Health. And in 1984, among the numerous awards that he has been given, he won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to the needs of infants and their families. I could go on and on about Michael and everyone who's ever been around me when his name comes up knows that I do go on and on about him. But he's also published uh, many book chapters. Um, He wrote a final book, uh, an overview of many experiences he had in his clinical practice, and that is called Four Decades in Infant Mental Health. I would strongly encourage you to look into purchasing that book if you have not already. He also wrote another book, uh, co-authored it with Lori Thomas called The Jonathan Letters, and perhaps Michael is best known for the incredible series of videotapes that he has created, particularly the transition series 
Some of you may have seen um, some of the videos that are part of that series. If you haven't, again, I encourage you to look into them. They are available through Chaddock. So for over 46 years, Michael has done this work with parents and their babies and individual adults as well. And he is going to share some of his insights with us in this series. So I look forward to bringing this to all of you and we will be coming right up. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Well, good morning, Michael. It's so good to have you here again on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. So I'm thrilled about this upcoming series called What's Missing from Clinical Practice Today. I'm going to let listeners know that this was inspired by a recent workshop that I attended, a a recent lecture that you gave on this topic. And I thought, wow, more people need to hear this. So here we are. So um, the first thing that I wanted to talk about was presence and holding in terms of what's missing from clinical practice today. So if you have something more general you wanna say before you go into that specific topic, that's fine. Or you can just start talking about that. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I do think it's it's very, very important and long overdue to just talk about who we are in our work and what really is the essence of clinical work and i think i think you and i probably agree that part of the essence is connection so when i approach the idea of how we connect with children and their parents um i think immediately of of how that how that can happen and fundamental to that absolutely fundamental but to my astonishment rarely taught at least when there are lessons on strategic interventions, is the idea of how we show up. Mm. Children know it from 20 paces, whether we're really there or not. They know when their parent is present, and they know when their therapist is present. Uh, Parents are sometimes a little slower to pick up on that, especially when the child is there, because they're often preoccupied with the child. But they'll get it before long, whether what you say, what you advise, how you ask questions, even how you sit uh, in their their living room or in your office, uh, either bespeaks that you're fully there, absolutely present to them, or you're not. 
And if you're not, then what they already know is pretty much what they knew when they were 13 and their parents were lecturing them, which is that the other guy has an agenda and my job is to shut up and listen and then ignore it later, as all 13-year-olds do. And little children and parents will do exactly the same thing. And frankly, we've got it coming. If we choose to not be present, then we're, we have, we've lost our connection and we've lost our right, really, to expect to be listened to. So are you saying we should not have an agenda for therapy? Uh, yeah, pretty much that. I know that sounds crazy and radical to many who always show up with toys at the very least, if not also an, uh, a computer and uh, plans, often promulgated, by the way, not by the therapist, but by the therapist supervisor who sent them out to accomplish this or that in the session. So I, I know all that to be true, but Yes, I would answer your question in the most simple way. We should not have an agenda. We should show up ready. And again, children always know that. We knew that when we were 13 and our parents said, well, let's just have a little chat. And the, the child knows, oh, you, we don't want to have a chat. You're, you're about to tell me something or change something in our house rules, or tell me that I'm grounded, or that that boy I'm dating is no good. You have an agenda. And so, la, 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 I'm not listening to that. Yeah. And parents do uh, an only slightly more sophisticated version of la, 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 when we have an agenda. On one hand, it sounds really wonderful to show up without an agenda, just be fully, not just, be fully present for what is going to unfold before us. And on another hand, it sounds kind of terrifying. Oh, absolutely terrifying. It shakes us to our bones. It makes us uh, uh, wanna be late or show up, not show up at all. And I, I mean to tease a little bit with that, but I think some of the times that we have problems on the way to the home visit, or our secretary uh, says we have a call at 29 minutes after the hour, and our appointment is at 30 minutes, we decide whether to take it or not take it. Sometimes that's based on how comfortable we feel going into this, whatever we're about to do. And structure gives us comfort. Presence gives me a great deal of comfort, but it gives most therapists the willies. So a lot of what we are teaching clinicians and therapists is pretty structured. You know, some therapies now have a manual, um, some manuals, for example, the manual for child parent psychotherapy is a lot more loose than the manual for trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy, but they are still some sort of manual with the this idea that well we can't figure out if this works if everybody's not doing the same thing yes. so in the name of science we have these procedures so to speak what what are your thoughts about that i i my first thought is oh i get it for goodness sakes i get it although by the way the way you just put it i i loved because it it gives us a chance to be incredibly embarrassed uh, 
if if you just said, I want to make sure we all do the same thing, I would think most of us would be profoundly embarrassed to it to say that that's really what we're doing. But anyway, <laughs> yes, I I think I, I get it. Uh, funding agents want to know if this stuff works, if I'm going to give you money to do it. Supervisors want to know that their therapists are not just out in the field doing who knows what, uh, breaking rules, crossing boundaries, uh, and not not getting anything done that you can measure. That, and that's great. I get that. Let's just slow down and say, yep, there's a reason for wanting to do that. That does not, however, mean we should do it just because there are reasons for doing it. Because when we start doing that, when we start wanting to make sure this is so structured and carefully written down that the funding agent will be pleased and everyone will be happy with our work, we've essentially admitted that there's, first of all, no creativity, as little presence as possible, and that the outcome, in order to be measured, has to be reduced to something measurable. Now, that sounds good on the surface until you think about it for a minute. What does it mean to, to boil down an intervention in such a way that it can be measured? It can mean that you reduce everything you do to the lowest common denominator and then focus on that. So did you tell the parent this? Did you ask this question? Did you accomplish this interaction with the child? Um, did you make sure the camera was on? So all those sing singular behaviors, you know, those are easily measured and they're easily teachable to somebody else. Um, but what have we done? We've reduced a complicated, sophisticated human interaction that's designed to create change where nobody wants to change where for good reason there will be resistance to change, we've reduced our effort to make change into the lowest common denominator behaviors. And those, once you get, 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 once you get them boiled down, are not very impressive behaviors. Mm -hmm. They're rote. So something I was thinking about as you were speaking, the way I posed the question was about how therapists are being trained but as you were talking, I thought, well, this also assumes there's a level of sameness in all the people that come in. And it's terribly embarrassing to admit that that's really what we must be thinking. We must be thinking most parents are alike. And by the way, I run into a great many early intervention people who, who either believe that and will say it, and don't even feel embarrassed about it, or don't realize they're say, they're meaning that, but say essentially that anyway. They'll say, oh, "Yeah, I knew what she was going to say," or "Yeah, I've seen parents like that before." Or, and uh, not only is that a lie, because no matter who you are, no matter who the parent is, you've never seen a parent like this before. There's never been a parent like this in your practice before, by definition. But of course, we need to make them into something recognizable if we're going to carry out these road behaviors with them. We need them to sit down, shut up, and engage with us in what we want to do. Mm -hmm. I'm overstating the case a little when I say we mean them to sit down and shut up. But, you know, it's, it's not far from that. 
we don't like defenses. We don't like resistance. We don't like trouble. We want to just kind of, kind of do the program. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, there's also this other perplexing, puzzling thing to me, and that is we do have this whole body of literature that is saying the reason therapies work is about the relationship rather than a technique. Yes. And it's almost as though lots of the time we just ignore that, <laughs> like pretend that doesn't exist because when we're looking at, you know, maybe an evidence-based practice, we're looking as, as we've been saying, like a very specific way that we want the clinician to deliver something to fidelity, right? That, that, that's the phrase we like to use instead of do it the same way everybody else does. <laughs> to fidelity sounds much better um so what i hear in what you're saying is this relational piece and you're going to define that in some very specific ways but is it is it is the piece that we need to worry about not worry about but be, be aware of think about how are we showing up you know, the oddest example just popped into my head, and this is probably an outrageous example. When, but when you were speaking of fidelity, I thought, what if people were taught to pray with fidelity? In other words, to pray exactly the same as everybody else, as if your God was the same as everybody else's, which would mean you pretty much should say those same words every time. Would you now say that's a superior prayer or that's a superior praying activity? Or would you say that it's your relationship with your God that is the most important thing? In mm -hmm. which case, fidelity is to the relationship, fidelity to the connection, not to any other rules. Mm. Yes. And when you think of presence and holding which holding we haven't even really touched on yet but when you think of presence what what characteristics what qualities what behave because there are characteristics qualities and behaviors absolutely what would you say are some of those uh at the risk of uh listeners deciding these are now strategies to use, <laughs> I will respond to your question. Uh, the obvious, they're mostly just the, the most obvious and basic things imaginable. Eye contact, um, moving with the flow of the parents or the child's words, but also with the flow of the, of the child or the parents' affects, the nuances of the shift in affect affective tone in their speech and responding to that, not just to the words. So if a parent, for example, says, um, oh, that's a bunch of baloney, that, that theory that you're espousing. Do you respond to those words? Of course not. You respond to the affect in the words and the body language in the words and the eye contact or lack thereof in their words. And you say then calmly and quietly sounds like you've heard words like this before sounds like you've been before in the position of someone 
telling you what they thought you ought to do as a parent. Or maybe we would say, sounds like you know a lot about this. I think you thought about this before I ever got here today. Now you're, now you're establishing, you're working at establishing connection because you've tuned in to the affect and the eye contact and the meaning of the words, not just the words. So that's first, eye contact. Yes. I'm thinking. And by the way, eye contact opens up. It's not just the act, the action of engaging in eye contact. It opens up a world of communion. Mm. That's the first order of business in any connection. But it's not just that thing in itself. As if we could check it off on a box. Yes, yes I did eye contact today. <laughs> I'm thinking about the statement that you brought up. I think this is baloney. You know, that, that might be a sanitized version of some of yes. what you've heard over the years and others listening. And how easily it would be to very quickly inside the clinician go into a defensive position. Mm -hmm. I need to explain this. I, I better explain the science behind this. I better do psychoeducation or or perhaps even worse. I, I better just defend myself. Maybe I should remind them of my credentials. I mean, <laughs> there's so many other things that could happen yes. that do happen that we need to be aware of not acting on so that we can act on exactly what you're saying. And it is so easy to not act on it. Although I do acknowledge also the impulse to act on it. You may be embarrassed. You may have been having a crappy day already. Uh, somebody else may have said to you at home earlier that day before you left what a dummy you were. Um, so this is just one more insult. I get all that, of course. But if we remember that our, the first order of business is connection, then the minute we are starting, the minute we think about establishing our credentials or arguing or trying to correct a parent or a child, we've severed the connection with them and turned the arrow back on ourselves. Because really at that moment, all we're trying to connect with is ourselves. We're trying to remind ourselves, I really am brilliant. I really am right. I really want to hold my head up strong here. I really don't like being embarrassed. Kids tease me in the third grade. This is mostly unconscious, by the way. Yes. Kids tease me in the third grade, and I hated it, and I wanted to smash heads then. And gosh, I wonder why I want to smash heads now. Oh, anyway, and that's all about me. Yes. So I'm sitting in somebody's living room relating to myself. What a, what a, a travesty that is. And it's so easy to avoid if we just remember that we're there to relate to the other, not to ourselves. We can relate to ourselves later. Yes. What about the second part of this holding? Mm -hmm. It flows out of presence from my perspective. Presence is the first order of business. Holding in my world of definition simply refers to the, the sense by the other 
that in your presence, they are, if not safe, at least guarded. At least there are some, there's some care in how we relate to them. And it allows them to recall if it's if there's any recollection to be had at all, what it felt like to sit with that old lady down the street that you used to go sit on the front porch of, and she would occasionally give you a cookie, and you'd just sit there and talk about the day. And you were only in the fifth grade, but she was so, what was she exactly? You can't remember what she was so, but she was so something that when you left her porch, you felt good. If you could have had the word then, you might have said, I felt held. I, I ask clinicians to try to recall that so that they can realize, in part, that's the thing you're trying to evoke in the child or the parent that you're working with. That sense of being, and now we run out of words, don't we? What is it? Is safe? Lifted up? Um, I don't think the words matter much. That's why you have to go to the example, to go to a time when you felt that way. And if you get incredibly lucky and your patient feels held, then you know you've, you've gotten far down the pike, even though you haven't uh, worked, so to speak, worked on anything at all yet, except the one thing that matters most, which is the relationship. You've got a relationship or the beginnings of it if your patient, the child or the parent, feels held. And from that vantage point now, they look at you anew. That, that doesn't mean they're not going to be resistant or defensive or angry or think you're a jerk from time to time. But if they can fall back on that sense that in your presence they feel held, they will be open to suggestion. They'll be open to themselves, which means what they're likely to be able to reveal um, is greater. I, I have a, a daughter who has a, a chronic disease that's meant she's probably gotten a thousand uh, sticks over the years to draw blood. I'm not exaggerating a thousand. And she told me one time when she was a little girl that she already knew the uh, phlebotomist or the or the technician who approached her with the needle. She already knew if they were any good or not. She knew before they ever started to try to make the stick whether they were going to be successful. And in those days, she just thought it was because certain ones were good and certain others weren't good. That's not what she meant. I'm sure of it. She meant when I saw them coming, I could tell whether this one was going to hold me or not. And if she holds me, my body is open to giving her my blood. And if she doesn't, I my muscles tighten up and I swear my capillaries tighten up and she can't get into me. She can't get anything out of me. That's so interesting. You're talking about a, now a physiological response to relationship, to presence and holding. By the way, I, I think if I had to come up with a very short list of magic moments, in psychotherapy with children and parents over the years, 
there have been moments when, for some reason or another, the child or the parent remembers being held by someone else in their life. And if they do that in my presence, I've always known that I helped with that. Uh, maybe because for at least a moment they felt a little held by me. But that's not important. The important. Well, it is important, but it's not the important thing. The important thing is, does that then allow them to remember when they were once held by another? And that opens the door to healing. Mm. That can make it a, a, a foster or adopted child who's been knocked around and thrown around from home to home and is sure there's no hope anywhere, including with these idiot foster parents that I've been placed with now. That allows that child for just a moment to imagine the possibility that they could be held again. Mm. Would you say that is like the memory that Alicia Lieberman talks about, the the angel in the nursery? Yes. Evoking the memory of the angel in the nursery. Yes. I wonder if our listeners are <laughs> if thinking, well, what if there weren't any? Then what? Yeah. And there may be none, at least none readily accessible. And even those that there were in actual life may be thin and far away. I'm not suggesting that there was a glorious golden angel, just something that wasn't as awful as the rest. Just some moment. You know, there was a guy in a church I went to many, many years ago who was an usher. And he was a crusty old guy, but for some reason he liked me. And I knew that because when they were taking up the collection, almost invariably, he would put his hand on my shoulder as he waited for the plate to come down the aisle. Isn't that a silly thing? I was a grown up. I was a man. And he was probably eight inches shorter than I was, an old Navy guy. But that moment lasting maybe three or four seconds, I'm still telling you about 40 years later. So it's that kind of thing. It, it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be glorious. It just has to be something in the child's experience that was a little bit different, a little bit less painful than the rest. Mm. Important clarification. And um, wow. You've said so much already today. I'm so excited for this series that we're doing together. This is the end of our first chat and listeners, please join us next week. We are going to be continuing this discussion. What's missing in clinical practice today with the amazing Michael Trout. Glad to be here. Look forward to the next. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.